So good morning. It is great to be here with you. It's always a privilege to share with you. Uh, two weeks ago, Sung introduced this series, The Great Invitation, and we're talking about throughout this series the idea of discipleship. And one of the comments that he made in that sermon was that you can be a Christian and not follow Christ. Now, that sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Think about it. You can be a Christian and not follow Christ. When I was a youth pastor, we called that fire insurance. So let me explain that a little bit. I come from a tradition that has an intense focus on your conversion experience, on that moment in time when you became a Christian. So everyone in our church had a story about the time that they felt the weight of their sin on their shoulders and came to realize that they could not earn their way into God's favor, that they needed Jesus, that his death and resurrection made the way for them to be reconciled to God, to be redeemed. And this moment was punctuated by a prayer. And it was this prayer of submission and faith, acknowledging what the Holy Spirit was doing inside of them. Now, many of you come from similar traditions or you have similar stories, you've experienced that in your lives. And I'm not making fun of that at all. It's core to my story. See, I had that experience in the chapel basement in Baumholder, Germany in January of 1991. But there is, there's a weakness in the whole thing. See, the strength of that experience is the comfort that you receive, that you know that there is nothing that can separate you from God. And focusing on that moment and knowing that you are secure in God's love is a huge strength. But the weakness comes in when your only focus is that moment in time that moment when you've been saved from hell, you have your get out of hell free card, you have your fire insurance. And when we focus just on that moment, we lose track of everything that happens after that. In an environment where we're so focused on this one moment in time and getting other people to have this same moment in time, we devalue everything we do after that moment. We devalue a majority of the Christian life because so much happens after that moment. I heard one time a pastor preach actually that the only reason God leaves us here on earth after conversion is so that we can tell other people the good news of Jesus so they'll be saved from hell. And there was no other reason that God left us here on earth but that. Now, telling other people the good news of Jesus is extremely important. It's kind of the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples is to go do that. It's an essential part of the Christian life. But when you focus on that and that only, you miss out on the joy of being with Jesus now on living a life with Jesus. You miss out on the joy of being together in community, experiencing God's love and God's blessing and God's grace together. 
And then you devalue all of the action after that conversion experience. I propose to you that that's why we have people out there that claim to be Christians, but are horrible human beings. They march in parades carrying big signs that say God hates fags. They protest people's funerals. They blow up abortion clinics. They're moralists claiming to be Christian, but they're not following Jesus. They're not following Christ. But here's the rub. For us, it's easy to see actions of evil like that and compare ourselves to them and become complacent. We think to ourselves, I'm not a vocal bigot. There are people I don't like. There are large groups of people that I would rather not move into my neighborhood. I'd rather not work where I work, rather than shop in their own grocery stores, rather than come to my town, to my grocery store in my part of town. We'd rather keep them there. But I'm not a vocal bigot. I'd never say anything like that. I'm not a murderer. I'd never kill anyone. There are some, a couple of people I wish were dead, but I'd never actually kill them. I might wish bad things would happen to them and think bad thoughts about them, but I would never actually really hurt them. And here's the thing. Just because we're not walking away from Jesus doesn't mean we're following Jesus. When we do things in private that don't honor Jesus, we're not following him. When we write things in social media that sow hatred and discontent and dissension, we're not following Jesus. When we gossip about our coworkers and classmates, we're not following Jesus. When we write unsavory things on websites about our professors claiming to rate them objectively. We're not following Jesus. When we lie, we're not following Jesus. See, that's the thing. When we're in private, just by ourselves, it's easy to compare ourselves to other people out there that are clearly, obviously not following Jesus, saying, I'm not that bad. And when we isolate ourselves and separate ourselves from other people, it's easy to see all of the great aspects of ourselves and all of the bad things we're not doing and say, hey, now I'm actually in pretty good shape. It's easy to convince ourselves that we're living God-honoring lives when there's no one around us to tell us anything else, when no one is close enough or has permission to actually talk to us about our lives or really like. This is the point the Apostle Paul made in chapter 6 of his letters to the church in Galatia. Um, the church in Galatia was somewhere in that region in what's now central Turkey. And Paul wrote this letter to the church there. And 
there were two sides of this argument that were arguing over what does the Christian life look like? How do you live like a Christian? And one side said, to be a good Christian, you had to be Jewish, just like Jesus. You had to obey the Old Testament law because Jesus was a Jew. He was circumcised as a child. He did all the Jewish rules and rituals growing up. If you wanna be a good Christian, you gotta be Jewish like Jesus. Then on the other side of the argument was Paul. And Paul said, Jesus came to save Jew and non-Jew alike. And the Old Testament law wasn't the highest law. Matter of fact, Jesus called us to something higher. Jesus called to us to what Paul calls the law of Christ, where we have to love others as much as we love ourselves. Matter of fact, not only do we have to love others generally, we have to love our enemies. And we have to love the people that are intent on hurting us. We have to pray for people that want to do us physical harm or prevent us from succeeding or hold us back. We have to love them. We have to pray for them. And that was the argument that Paul was making in his letter to the, book, to the church in Galatia. And as we get into that letter a little bit, would you please pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the baptisms you gave us the privilege to experience. And thank you for your word and how you communicate to us. Ask that you would help us hear from you this morning and learn how to follow you more closely. In Jesus' name, amen. So Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now originally, when I was getting ready for this sermon, I actually planned on going over the first five verses, that whole paragraph at the beginning of chapter six of Galatians. But there's so much for us about community and what it means to be in Christian community in this one verse that if I would do the whole thing, it would have been another 20, 30 minutes. So we're gonna focus on this one verse. Let's look at it more closely. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, transgression is another word for sin, doing the wrong thing, the bad stuff, you know, any, caught, any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, that word caught kind of trips me up a little bit. When I see that in this verse, I think of the police dramas where you've got one spouse that hires the private investigator to catch the other spouse doing something wrong for evidence of that. You know, I think of these private investigators on TV in these seedy looking cars that even though there is no such thing as smell-o-vision, you can still tell the car really stinks and smells like fast food wrappers. You know, that kind of car they're driving around in with their binoculars, taking down notes. I don't know about you, that's not the kind of community I really want to be a part of. Uh, the idea that someone in my community group is assigned to watch me hiding in the bushes to catch me in sin, and they're gonna be following me around to wait to see where I trip up so they can catch me in sin. That's not the kind of community I wanna be a part of. 
But I think there's another way to interpret and understand that word caught in this verse. Because in one sense, it could be someone catching you do something wrong. But I think the point that Paul is making when you look at that is not that the person is catching the sinner, but rather the sin is catching the sinner. They're caught in that sin. Because when we keep ourselves separate, we can sometimes forget that sin is sin, and we can be convinced that sin isn't really sin. And we can convince ourselves that what we're doing is okay. Everything is good, and we can then be deceived by sin. Now, I don't know about you, but I justify myself really, really well. I'm really good at rationalizing away my actions. I'm really, really good at convincing myself of how awesome I really am. And that's why we need community. Because when we don't have people around us, we can be caught in sin. We need people who love us, who are with us, experiencing life together with us, growing with us and see our faults and our foibles and have permission to talk to us and help us through that. Because if not, we can be caught in sin and then be stuck in that sin. Let's look more at the second, um, the second phrase in that verse. Um, you who are spiritual should restore him. You who are spiritual should restore him. We need to be in community because we can get caught in sin, but also in Christian community, we have the obligation to restore one another. We have the obligation to restore one another. When I was studying this, Scott McKnight, his commentary on Galatians says this. In this situation, the community should take it upon itself to restore such a person because this is one way a family expresses its love. One of the ways that we show our community, we show our family that we love them is by restoring them when they fall, restoring them when they're caught in sin. An illustration from family, when you're a parent and your child is doing something wrong that you know is going to lead to bad things in the future. As a parent, you correct them, you restore them, you help them. That is loving. And if someone were to not help their children in situations where their children were making bad choices, we consider them neglectful parents. They're not doing what a parent should do. The community is responsible for restoring one another. And I think this is a significant difference between Christian community and other communities. Let me give you an illustration. Before I got married, for years, I studied Tung Soo Do. Now, Tung Soo Do is a Korean martial art very similar to Taekwondo. I studied with the same group of guys five or six days a week. We spent a lot of time together. We built a Tung Soo Do community. 
And so when one of us was caught not doing tongue pseudo correctly, we would restore one another. If our stances weren't correct, hey, you need to bend your knee more, you need to straighten your leg more, you need to shift your weight here, you need to have your balance here. When we weren't doing our basic actions right, it's like, no, the kick should come from this angle. No, you've got to shift this way to make that punch happen and work. You know, when we were doing our forms, practicing our forms, like, no, you turn this way. You this is an easier way to memorize that, to help you know that. When we were sparring, we'd give each other pointers. So when I was sparring with someone, and someone was doing something that I knew what their next move was, that telegraphing their move, I could see, hey, every time you do this, you do this other thing too. I would tell them about it. I'd sit there and say, okay, you just did that, so now I know you're going to do this. And we'd talk it through. If for some reason they couldn't get past my defense, I would tell them what I was doing, how I was preventing them from hitting me. I would literally spend time talking to someone, teaching them how it would be easier for them to kick me in the head. Because that's what Tang Sudo community does. But we never talked about character. We never talked about sin. I mean, in very vague terms, we talk about character, kind of this warrior ethos, this warrior way. But the idea of actually addressing our faults and failures, we didn't do that. That wasn't part of our community. And that's the difference in Christian community. We aren't trying to teach each other a new skill. We're not trying to get each other to be better doctors or researchers or students or employees or bosses or entrepreneurs. We're trying to be better at life. Now, all of that other stuff is encompassed in that, and it's part of it, but that's not our focus. Our focus is being better human beings. Our focus is being better at following Jesus, to together become more like Jesus. And here is kind of a struggle then that we have in Christian community. See, oftentimes we're not very good at that. Most of the Christian communities I've been in aren't very good at holding each other accountable for sin and restoring each other. Because it is very uncomfortable to see someone caught in sin and say something about it. It's very uncomfortable to put yourself in the position to say, I'm going to help restore you. And in most of the Christian communities that I've been a part of, I've been a part of the problem. Because even for a pastor, it's uncomfortable to say, this is an area in which you're caught. This is an area in which you need to grow. As I was studying for the sermon, um, Thomas Schreiner's commentary really just hit me right between the eyes when it comes to this issue. It says, sometimes love demands that we speak a word that is hard and difficult. Tolerating evil in the church may appear to be loving since it flies under the banner of unconditional acceptance. But such tolerance cannot be equated with love since it does not confront an evil that will surely spread, and such evil will surely destroy the perpetrator. Tolerating anything and everything is not love. 
to truly love someone means to help them when they're missing the mark, to help them when they're failing. The truth is, when we don't address sin in our community, when we don't restore our brothers and sisters, we deny the good news of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is that we are more sinful than we can possibly imagine. And God loves us more than we can possibly believe. So because God loves us so much, he sent Jesus to die on the cross to defeat sin and death for us. And he rose again so we can live with him eternally. And he sent his Holy Spirit to redeem us and transform us so that we could be the people that we were created in God's image to be. When we don't restore our brothers and sisters, when we choose not to restore our brothers and sisters, we leave them in the state that Jesus died to free them from. When I don't, when I choose not to restore my brothers and sisters, I leave them in the state that Jesus died to free them from. When you choose not to restore your brothers and sisters, you deny the good news of Jesus and everything that Jesus stands for. And this obligation is a mutual obligation. It's an obligation we all share. See, Paul writes, you who are spiritual. Okay, you who are spiritual, the spiritual ones, are not some special class of Christian that has gained some level of knowledge or wisdom or love. There's no stratification of spirituality or faith in Christianity. In Christ, we are all one. If you have put your faith in Christ, if you have given your life over to Jesus, if you are a Christian, you are spiritual. There's no waiting. There's nothing you have to do to earn that title. You are spiritual because God made you that way. And all of us then who are spiritual, we have the mutual obligation to restore our brothers and sisters that are caught in sin. In so doing, we have to be careful. There's a caution that goes with this. We must beware of sinking in to moralism. We must beware of sinking into the attitude that we are in some way better than someone caught in sin. That itself is a sin in which we can get caught. That's the sin Jesus regularly called the Pharisees out for. Jesus called them out in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you experts of the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones of the dead and of everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you look righteous to people. 
but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Let me rephrase that. On the outside, you look good, you look godly, and you hold other people to good-looking standards. But on the inside, you are unrighteous, you are ungodly. You look Christian, but you don't follow Christ. Many of you have experienced this in churches um, or have heard stories about it. I know I have. Um, One of my mentors had an affair, and it ripped apart the church, and it ripped apart his family. Now, this man, if it wasn't for this man, I don't think I would be here today. I don't think I would be a pastor if it weren't for his influence on my life. And when he fell, it tore me apart. Because if my mentor fell, how can I stand? And I'm grateful to other mentors that helped me get through that. But the reason I tell you that story isn't for the effect it had on me in that moment, but rather what happened afterwards. You see, afterwards, after all this became public, well, now the conversation started. Well, you know, the reason that he was having financial problems was because of that affair. The reason his ministry wasn't succeeding the way it should have was because of that affair. You know, all of these negative aspects, you know, that affair. Now, let me be clear on this. There is no doubt in my mind that his sin had a dramatic effect on every aspect of his life. But those conversations were not a loving community seeing a brother caught in sin and reaching out to restore him. They were conversations to distance themselves from the sin. Distance themselves from all that he had done and look how wrong he was And he was, in effect, shunned and excommunicated from that church. And because his wife chose not to leave him, but to work to restore their marriage, she and their children ultimately shared the same fate. That is likewise a rejection of the gospel, a rejection of the good news. And I think that's why Paul ends the sentence the way he does. See, this verse in Greek is all one sentence. And this last part, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And as I was researching this, more more time was spent in the commentaries on what's highlighted up on the screen now than the rest of the verse by two to one. And I think the big reason for that is because we probably need that the most. And I think maybe the Galatian church did too, because when you look at the rest of the paragraph, it talks about the fact that we will be held accountable for our sin. We will never be rejected by Jesus. We will never be condemned by him. But we will have to give an account to him for everything that we've done, including how We restore our brothers and sisters. And so the way I'd like to summarize this is don't forget the good news of Jesus. 
when we see a brother or sister caught in sin, we're to restore them, but we need to approach them as a sinner saved by grace, as someone who knows they will at one point need to be restored by the community, that we are no better than any other person, that Jesus in our lives is the only thing that saves us from sin. And we need to have that perspective when we reach out to our brothers and sisters. It's not with a condemning finger. It's with a helping hand saying, we want better things for you. Let's help you be restored. That word restored actually in the Greek has connotations of rebuilding a broken down wall making something that has been broken new again, making it better, making it what it once was, what it's supposed to be. We need to be able to restore our brothers and sisters in humility and gentleness. We need to be in community because we can get caught in sin. In Christian community, we have the obligation to restore one another. Don't forget the good news of Jesus. If you are in a community group now, as community groups are ramping up this fall, my challenge to you is to dig deeper into that community. Let them see your life. Be open to them so that when you do get caught in sin, they're there to help you. And then as a community, Restore one another with gentleness and humility, not forgetting the good news of Jesus. If you're not yet in a community group, after service this morning, several community group leaders are going to come down to the front. I invite you to come up here and talk to us. Learn a little bit more about the community groups we have here at Grace Ann Arbor, and hopefully you can find that kind of community that will help you when you're caught in sin and a community in which you can restore your brothers and sisters with gentleness and humility. As the band comes forward, would you please pray with me? Father, thank you. We love you. We love what you have done and what you are doing in our lives. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice for us. And that through that sacrifice and resurrection, we have the ability to follow you. Holy Spirit, give us the courage to be transparent enough so that our family can see us caught in sin and the courage to, with humility and gentleness, restore our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.